she could hear the gunfire and she was worried that he was going to find her before help got there. But then she said off in the distance, she heard what she described as the sweetest sound. She, she heard me yell, police, drop your weapon. In Spokane, Washington today, the gunman walked into a military hospital at Fairchild Air Force Base where he killed four people and wounded 21 others for he was killed by a military policeman. With just a 9mm pistol and at a distance of more than 100 yards, Staff Sergeant Andy Brown opened fire, hitting the gunman in the head and killing him instantly. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. I'm very honored to introduce today's guest, Andy Brown, the brave Air Force Staff Sergeant who put his life on the line and gunned down a deranged killer, thus ending a mass shooting spree at Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington State on June 20th, 1994. He did so despite the fact that the gunman was armed with an AK-47 variant and he was firing a Beretta pistol from more than 70 yards away. Days later, as people on the base were waking up from that terrible nightmare, a rogue pilot crashed a B-52 bomber during an air show practice flight. In both cases, numerous professionals at the air base had issued multiple strong warnings about the shooter and the pilot, but those warnings went unheeded. Warnings Unheeded is the title of Andy Brown's excellent and important book, about his role in ending the mass shooting and how he dealt with its terrible psychological after-effects. Andy Brown is today's hero behind the headlines. If you could just tell us a little bit about your background, you know, how you ended up being in Washington State at, at the time when this took place. Sure, you bet. I was born and raised in Port Orchard, Washington, which is on the wet side of the state. The Air Force Base that I would eventually be stationed at is on the eastern side. It's divided by a mountain range, so there's a dry side and a wet side. But I grew up in Port Orchard. It was a small town, about 5,000 people on uh, Puget Sound, and it was a great uh, place to to be raised and, and be a kid. It was good times, and I've always admired law enforcement officers. I also liked firefighters. My dad was a firefighter, and so when I was old enough in high school, I became a volunteer. Um, wasn't a great student in high school. Didn't really care for school. So when I graduated, I didn't have a whole lot of options available to me other than minimum wage jobs and didn't want to continue schooling. So I thought the military would be a good choice for me. My sister was in the Air Force. I had a lot of other relatives in the military and through them, I learned that the Air Force was a, the kindler and gentler of the services, that they <laughs> treated their people better as far as the food and the, the housing. So I, I joined the Air Force, and my recruiter said he couldn't guarantee me a job in law enforcement, but I could go into the Air Force, and once I signed the papers, I could go in and and request whatever job I wanted, and he said I would. So you specifically wanted law enforcement in the Air law Force? Law enforcement or fire department. I was kind of leaning towards law enforcement because they got to carry guns. But I I did join the Air Force, and luckily I was selected to be a law enforcement specialist. So my first base was in Mountain Home, Idaho, after tech school. I was sent to Idaho. I graduated from tech school um, as an honor graduate 
where they taught us the basics of law enforcement, like um, writing tickets, doing traffic stops, taking reports, and responding to things that we might encounter in the Air Force, like domestic disputes and, and such. Mountain Home, Idaho, it sounds like a beautiful place, but it's out in the middle of nowhere in the southern Idaho. It's just in the, <laughs> in the desert plains. And I was a kid. I was uh, 19 years old at the time, and there was really nothing for me to do there. So pretty quickly, I put in for an overseas long tour and got picked up to go to Greece on the island of Crete, and I spent three years there. Yeah, that was an amazing base. Our fourth perimeter fence was open to the to the ocean there, to the Mediterranean Sea. Wow. Sounds a lot better than Idaho. <laughs> yeah. It, it was the best three years of my career there. Um, I'd always taken the job of law enforcement seriously. And in Idaho, I'd worked with quite a few different patrolmen and, and they had the same mindset of trying to to always be ready for whatever you might encounter on the streets. I didn't think we received enough training as far as tactics and, and firearms. And I was always looking for like a magic book or some lessons that could be passed down from, from officers of the past that, that would teach you how to be safe on the streets. And I've never found it until I got to Crete and they had a small library there in the, and there were some books written by a, a man named Charles Bremsberg that was a three book series of how to survive high risk patrol. And one of the techniques that I learned from his books was mental rehearsal. A lot of athletes use the same technique where they mentally rehearse an incident or an activity in your, your mind. And you would, you would see yourself performing down to the minute detail. Like I would rehearse being involved in a deadly force incident and I would see myself lining up the sights of my pistol and pulling the trigger and I would see the, the shot break and just was a really effective tool to where you, when you encounter something like a lethal force threat, it's almost like it's not your first time being there. So you're able to respond more quickly and, and react without hesitation. But it turned out that it was a pretty cushy assignment. It was like being at Club Med where the, the <laughs> hardest thing I experienced at Crete was trying to maintain my survival mindset in such a casual yeah, atmosphere i would imagine yeah yeah so after my three years in uh, crete i was stationed got orders to fairchild air force base which is in near spokane washington and was there for a few months and then that was back um when we were over in saudi arabia for the first gulf war the war was over but we still had a presence so i was sent tdy temporary duty to saudi arabia and at the time, there was no alcohol allowed because the country was, was dry. They had different rules. So in order not to upset our hosts, we, we didn't drink alcohol. So it was a pretty good opportunity for me to get into shape. The only thing to do really was hit the gym. So it turned out that I got into the best shape of my life at the time. So after three months there, I went back to Fairchild and was pretty quickly selected for um, bike patrol. Um, didn't really re receive any training on how to be a law enforcement officer on a bike. It's kind of <laughs> we're just kind of winging it, right? But um, it, but it sounds like you were kind of like uniquely prepared in terms of your mental preparation, developing your skills, and and also just being in physical shape. Yes, 
because as it turned out, I would be responding to that active shooter call on a bicycle. So it was pretty fortunate that I just spent three months practicing how to ride a right. stationary bike. Another thing I had done was I didn't think we got enough training with our firearms. And at any time I could, I would, anytime I could afford the ammo, I would go out to the woods and shoot at pop cans. And more often than not, though, I would do dry fire training where I would take an unloaded weapon and, and fire it without ammo in it just to get practice of lining up the sights and pulling the trigger, which is good for muscle memory and being able to, to get the fundamentals down to where you don't have to think about it when you need it. While Andy was sharpening his skills, the 20-year-old gunman was having trouble adjusting to life in the Air Force. I'm not going to mention his name because the gunman deserves no notoriety. During basic training, an Air Force psychiatrist recommended he be discharged for a personality disorder. Instead, he was graduated and sent to Lowry Air Force Base in Colorado, where he was trained in aircraft maintenance. Upon being transferred to Fairchild a year later, co-workers and his dormitory roommates started to complain about his strange unsocial behavior. Major Brigham, the base psychiatrist, and Captain London, the base psychologist, both examined him and concluded he was dangerous and recommended his discharge from the Air Force. It was just like any other day. It seemed like any other day to me. Um, I was working a swing shift that day. It was my second day on bike patrol ever. And uh, so I went over to the squadron and was going to get armed up. You have to show up at the arm to the armory ahead of your shift to get armed up and then do a guard mount where your your flight chief, like the chief of your patrolman there, he would brief you on what he wanted you to do that day and, and do any little bit of training, like briefings, right before the shift started. When I went to get my pistol from the armory, I was told that the weapon that I normally qualified with and, and fired with and was comfortable with was tagged for maintenance. So they gave me a standby gun, one that I'd never fired before. I went to the clearing barrel to load it and, and checked it out, did a function check of it before I loaded it up and, and put it in my holster saying, well, I guess it'll shoot somebody. I was just hoping that the sights were lined up. Right. And That's and quite that important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, then before we broke guard mount, we had a, a training video on how to handle the press and media at critical incidents, which was kind of fitting. But other than that, yeah, there was no, that's no foreshadowing. What, about what time are we talking now? It was our shift started at 2 p.m. and ended at 10 p.m. on it. That was a swing shift. So it was a June afternoon in, in uh, the Spokane area. It was usually hot, and it was a hot day that day. It was about 2 p.m. when I got out on the road. It was a, a cloudless day. It was beautiful. And I was told to focus my patrols on the housing areas. So I had been patrolling through the housing areas and, and riding on the sidewalks past houses, past people washing their cars and kids playing in the sprinklers and it was a beautiful day and I was enjoying the ride. There was a couple of housing areas on the base, but then also outside of the perimeter fence, there were two other housing areas and a hospital. And, and they were butted up right against the perimeter fence of uh, that separated one of the on-base housing areas from the hospital and those two other neighborhoods. 
that was Air Force property, but it was leased from Spokane County. So it hadn't been incorporated inside the perimeter fence yet. So I was intending to go and patrol those two housing areas and was headed toward the back gate to get to the road that led to that area. But since it was a hot day and I wasn't used to riding a bicycle in the heat, I stopped at the back gate and was visiting with the gate guard there and enjoying his air conditioning. (laughs) While I was in there talking with the gate guard, a call came over the radio. And the call said, uh, Fairchild to all posts and patrols that we have an alarm at the ER and that there's a man running around the hospital with a shotgun. The call Andy received that day would become only the second single-shooter rampage at a U.S. military base. Sadly, there have been over a dozen single-shooter mass killings at military bases since. Earlier that year, the gunman had been ordered to spend time at a psychiatric inpatient facility. After 90 days, his mother convinced the psychiatrist there to change her son's diagnosis to autistic disorder in presence of high intelligence, which allowed him to continue serving in the Air Force. Despite all this, his mental health continued to deteriorate, and on May 23, 1994, he was formally discharged from the Air Force. A month later, the gunman returned to Fairchild to exact revenge on the doctors there. Before that call had ended, I had already jumped out off my chair and strapped on my helmet and was on my bike headed out towards Graham Road, which was a two-lane asphalt road that led straight to the hospital past one housing area and uh, another housing area beyond the hospital. But it was a straight road led from the back gate adjacent to uh, the perimeter fence. And I was trying to imagine what I was going to find when I got there. This was before active shooters were a a common terminology. I don't think the phrase active shooter had even been coined yet. Those incidents had been happening. They've happened since the dawn of time, people attacking others in a public setting for no apparent reason. But we haven't been trained to respond to them. We haven't, and it was something I hadn't really even planned on or prepared to respond to. I had practiced a lot of different lethal force incidents in my mind, but never an, an active shooter incident. Um, one thing that I had been mentally rehearsing, a new thing that I had put into my toolbox, if you want to say, is I had imagined walking into a, our convenience store on the base and interrupting a, a robbery, and I might have to take a shot to uh, stop a threat, and there might be people behind the threat. So I practiced taking a knee so that if I missed, the trajectory of my bullet might not um, threaten the people behind a perpetrator. So I'd, I'd been practicing that, which might affect how I responded to this incident. So I was riding down Graham Road towards the hospital. And I remember I wasn't panicked or wasn't feeling any stress. I felt a sense of calm come over me. I don't know why exactly, but also um, the world around me slowed down and and went silent. I was already experiencing some of the psychological effects of of stress where I was getting a little bit of tunnel vision and auditory exclusion. I I was riding towards the uh, hospital and there was cars coming towards me. They had rolled their windows down and the occupants were yelling out at me. And I didn't slow down, but I 
was yelling back at them, telling them I couldn't understand them, and they were continued yelling at me, but I, I couldn't hear the words coming out of their mouth, so I just kept riding. Um, I remember a, a dump truck, a military dump truck, was rolling down the road towards me, and there were people hanging off the side of the doors. There were people in the back of the dump bed, and they were all leaning over and waving and yelling at me. They were trying to warn me about what they had just fled from, but I couldn't understand their, their words, but their, their um, demeanor told me that there was trouble ahead. So I continued riding toward the hospital. What I didn't know was that uh, there was a man that was armed with an AK-47 variant and a 75-round drum clip, and he had started in an annex building of the hospital that housed the mental health facility of the base. He had walked down the hallway with the rifle and opened up the door of the psychologist and psychiatrist and shot each of them in the chest before leaving the building and firing at people in the parking lot as he made his way over towards the main hospital. And he continued firing inside the hospital, shooting at people in a pharmacy lobby and moved down a hallway to a shot clinic and was trying to gain entry into the shot clinic when uh, a sergeant heard the gunfire. He had his two-year-old daughter in the shot clinic and he stood by the door and when he saw the rifle but jutting to, into the doorway, he jumped down and grabbed the rifle and, and forced the gunman out into the hallway where he turned and, and went down the hall and retraced his steps and continued firing at the men, women, and children, the, the hospital patrons and staff. And he um, made his way toward the family practice area of the hospital where another sergeant had heard the gunfire and when he saw the gunman in the lobby of the family practice, he turned and ran back into the pediatric clinic, which was where he worked. And he closed a set of double fire doors and put his shoulder into them and was holding those doors closed while he yelled for people to evacuate. People weren't sure what was going on. They didn't know if it was a fire drill or a fire or a lot of them didn't realize that there was a gunman shooting, but they listened to his orders and evacuated the pediatric clinic and made their way out into the parking lot. Andy wasted no time responding to the police bulletin. Within minutes, he saw a man armed with a Mac-90 assault weapon equipped with a 70-round drum magazine shooting at unarmed people cowering in the parking lot. One of them was a pregnant woman. What Andy didn't know is that the shooter had already killed and seriously wounded at least a dozen adults and children in the hospital. Among the first victims were Major Brigham and Captain London, the doctors who had originally diagnosed him. It's also important to note that when the shooter purchased the Mac-90 assault rifle days before the incident, he did so legally. There was no waiting time for rifle purchases or requirement for a background check at the time. The shooter simply filled out an ATF Form 4473 on which he failed to disclose that he had just spent 90 days in a psychiatric unit. Even today, few states make disqualifying mental health information available to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System database. So, the gunman left the pediatric clinic and moved down a hallway chasing a crowd out into the parking lot and he made his way out to Graham Road as he was firing at people 
There and he's just picking out random people. He's shooting at, shooting at anybody who's moving. Anybody yeah. who's moving. Wow. So people were hiding behind cars, um, scrambling down into ditches, and um, just running away. And he made his way out to Graham Road, and, and there was a woman crouched behind a minivan, and he fired at her. And, and a witness in the annex building, which is a few hundred yards away, said that they he saw the gunman fire at her several times after she was down. And then he started moving down Graham road, firing to his left and right at people who were hiding behind the vehicles. Wow. There was a woman who had fled from the pediatric clinic that had made her way to the, like a hedge of, of bushes. And she was hiding behind them laying in the grass and she was wearing hospital whites. And she was really worried that he was going to see her hiding because her uniform stood out so much. And she could hear the sirens on the base, and she could hear the gunfire, and she was worried that he was going to find her before help got there. But then she said off in the distance, she heard what she described as the sweetest sound. She, she heard me yell, police, drop your weapon. So I was on Graham Road responding to the area on the, the bicycle. And like, like you said, I didn't know what I was responding to. I just knew that there was a man with a gun. It was initially described as a shotgun, but it turned out to be the AK-47. As I got near the annex, which was the first building in the hospital compound that I was going to to approach, as I neared the annex, I heard gunfire, and I rode through a crowd that was fleeing the area, and I asked them, where is he? And they all collectively pointed behind themselves and said, there's a man with a rifle, he's over there shooting people. So I finished getting through the crowd and, and heard gunfire reverberating off of the hospital buildings to my right and the housing area to my left, but I couldn't tell where it was coming from and continued riding forward and eventually saw the man. He was dressed in dark clothing. He was walking down Graham, the middle of Graham Road towards me, and he had the long gun at his hip and it was firing to his left and his right so I veered right and rode up onto a sidewalk in front of the hospital annex I dumped the bike and my momentum carried me a couple steps forward as I drew my Beretta and took a kneeling position while I aimed the gun in his direction and yelled at him police drop your weapon put it down he uh continued walking and firing to his side. I yelled again. I could see people scurrying to either side of him, behind him, and I could see people in the background, and I was hesitant to fire until I yelled at him the second time, and he pointed the rifle in my direction, and I felt uh, like his actions were overweighing the, the risk that I would be causing other people in the area, so I made the decision to return fire. It didn't occur to me how far away he was. I just figured if I could see him, I could hit him. And I lined him up in my sights and I could, I didn't realize it was a a, dis, a great distance away, but it was having trouble seeing him behind the front post of my, my front sight. Couldn't get him in the sight picture because he was so far away. Were you able to see a glimpse of his face or was there anything you could determine about his demeanor? He was too far away for me to see any emotion on his face, but his movements were 
fairly robotic. He he wasn't acting erratic in any way. He was just calmly walking down the road and and then apparently calmly firing at me. And it wasn't like he didn't look like it was in anger. It was just sort of methodical. Yes. People said he was firing repeatedly at me, but I, I couldn't tell because I was focused on the, the sights. Um, there was people inside the hospital who were on the ground when he was walking past them and firing at them, and they said that he, he his eyes looked dead and he had no emotion on his face. But I didn't see it. Wow. So my first shot, it didn't seem to change his behavior, but there was a individual hiding under a car nearby that said that it, it, the gunman reacted as if I had hit him in the left shoulder. And it turned out that I did. I uh, continued firing. My, my shots were controlled and, and rhythmic. As soon as I got a sight picture, I continued squeezing the trigger and firing. I fired off two additional rounds and a thought flashed in my mind that I'm shooting him and nothing's happening. It was kind of like the occupational nightmare that I used to have where I would dream that I was in a lethal force incident and be shooting at somebody and the, the gun either wouldn't work, it wouldn't fire, or the bullets would just bounce off of them. <laughs> it was a common dream that, yeah. that police officers had. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. kind of felt like I was reliving that nightmare, but it didn't, didn't slow me down. I, I continued, uh, returning fire. And on my fourth round, the individual jumped up in the air, spun around and landed flat on his back with his rifle pointing away from me and his, his hand and, and the rifle was motionless at, like he was. How far was he, Andy? The, the sheriff's investigation determined later that my final shot that stopped him was between 68 and 71 yards away. And the maximum effective range of that weapon is, I believe, 50 yards. Yeah. I mean, I've fired uh, uh, pistols, and that that's a long distance to hit somebody yeah. with a pistol. Very hard. There was a individual in the annex that was watching this all occur and, and said that he saw a burst of red mist emitting from the gunman's head right before he jumped up in the air and fell down. And it turned out that I had struck the gunman on the bridge of the nose and the bullet passed through his brain. And and that bullet passing through his brain set off in an electrical storm, sending messages to all of his uh, muscles. And I think that's what launched him up into the air. His legs just um, automatically extended and, and launched him into the air. It was... It was like what you see in Hollywood, but that never really happened. <laughs> right. it, it did happen that day. You you weren't aiming. You were just trying to hit him in the body, I would imagine, from that distance. Yeah. yeah. I was just aiming at a spot. I, I was just trying to hit him. I, I didn't uh, intentionally make a headshot, but because he was so far away, it was. I was just glad to be hitting him. Um, but yeah, the headshot took him out of the fight immediately. Okay, so so now he's down. What happens next? So I was out in the open on the, the sidewalk. There was a telephone pole and a fire hydrant and a large metal box, like an electrical transformer that I could have been like seeking cover behind, but I hadn't thought about it at the time. So as soon as the bullets stopped flying is when I thought I should seek cover for some reason. 
So I stood up and was moving towards a pickup truck. It was the last position of cover between me and the open grass that was between me and the gunman. So I was headed that way, and then I realized I hadn't radioed in that I was on scene. So I knelt back down and radioed my call sign and what I had seen and what action I had taken it. It seemed to me like I was calm and in control. And But uh, when I listened to the radio tape years later, it came out in a adrenaline-induced, punctuationless burst of speech where I radioed Fairchild Police 6, shots fired, he's down, I took him down. But then I stood back up and went back towards the position of cover of the pickup truck and waited for backup to arrive. When they, uh, the patrols finally showed up, it was probably less than a minute before they got there, but it felt like quite a while. I realized that I was still experiencing tunnel vision. It was almost like it was black in my peripheral. I couldn't see anything other than straight ahead of me because I was focused on the gunman so much, but I shook it off and, and checked my surroundings to make sure there was no other threats in the area. And that's when I witnessed other, there was people coming out of the fire escape stairs at the end of the annex, right where I had been kneeling and firing. And they were just standing there on the stairs. And I yelled at them to get out of the area unless they were a medic. Um, then my supervisor showed up and she was beside me by the truck. And I covered her while she went out to the gunman and kicked his rifle away. And then a medic had seen the gunman fall and didn't realize he was uh, the shooter. He thought he was a victim. But regardless, their duty said that they needed to, re- to uh, render medical aid. He said that the gunman had a strong pulse, but he wasn't breathing. He said later that uh, he was dead. He just didn't know it yet. Um, so then I was directed to go back to basically where I had fired from and set up a perimeter. And when I got back there, there was already quite a few security vehicles lining the perimeter blocking the roads and so I just leaned up behind a security specialist's vehicle and and kept people out of the area I remember checking my magazine to make sure I still had enough rounds in it and realized I'd only fired four rounds so I reinserted the mag um, I kind of felt useless there just sitting on the perimeter when there was Still a lot more that could be done. There was rumors of a sniper. People had been calling in that there was a sniper on top of the annex building. And I think that came out because people had saw me shoot the gunman and thought maybe that uh, there was a sniper on top of the building and that the gunman was a victim. But regardless, we had to check out that report and there was a lot of uh, building clearing to be done. So I got a ride with an OSI agent, which is like the Air Force's FBI. So he said that they needed security at the ER. So I went, rode with him, headed towards the ER building of the hospital. And as I was riding in his car down Graham Road, then we drove past the woman who was behind the minivan that had been shot multiple times. And there was a sheet draped over her head and the sheet was soaked in blood. I felt uh, quite a bit of concern that maybe one of my bullets had struck her. So that was starting to, to eat at me. And I was at, at the ER 
doorway while medics were moving in and out, tending to the wounded and loading up ambulances. And I stopped one medic and asked him about that woman behind the minivan. And, and he assured me that she was dead before I arrived on scene. And I felt relief when I heard that, but I was also wondering what he had experienced that day where he could speak with such certainty. Then later on, I helped search and clear the, the hospital itself, just kind of eliminating any rumors or any doubt that there was only one gunman. I remember going into to rooms and seeing chairs with bullet holes in them and, and like body tissue surrounding the bullet holes. And one of the last rooms that I cleared was uh, the hospital cafeteria. It was like a serving line. There was like stainless steel tables and such. And the lights were off when I pushed in that door. So I drew my flashlight and was clearing the area. And I remember my feet were slipping on the floor. And when I got done clearing that room and flicked on a light, I could see that I had been standing in a large pool of blood. Wow. About that time, I heard on the radio that they were wanting me out at the perimeter, at the command post. So I got a ride out to the perimeter, and we rode down Graham Road, and I saw the, the gunman. It occurred to me that, that nobody was working on him, and he was just lying there and was covered in a sheet. And that's when I realized that the gunman was dead. Didn't feel a whole lot of emotion for, for killing him. I remember it was like a slight sense of exhilaration for surviving a, a gunfight, but any like sense of triumph was muted by the all of the tragedy that I had seen. So we got out to the um, perimeter and I talked with the sheriff. The sheriff was uh, taking over the investigation because it occurred on their property and they had more resources to um, conduct the investigation. And I told the sheriff where I had fired from and what I had seen and told him where my brass should be. Um, and then I was told that I needed to go back to the law enforcement desk, which was like our, our headquarters, our squadron. And before I got in the car to, to head that way, somebody said they needed my pistol. And I didn't feel comfortable just taking my gun out of my holster to hand it over, so I gave him my whole duty belt. I, I felt very vulnerable being disarmed at the scene of my shooting. Sure, And sure, also sure. kind of felt, uh, felt punitive being relieved of duty before the before my job was done. I felt like I could still help out there at the scene. Nowadays, people know that it's not necessary to, to disarm a, a cop that's been involved in a shooting. I know they're, they're going to need the gun for evidence later, but it doesn't have to be done at the scene. Well, and it sort of gives the impression that somehow you did something wrong, which is kind of, of course, it's necessary later but to do it in the moment like that it's it's that that's pretty abrupt yeah i don't think most cops would tell you that anytime somebody officially disarms you that that's considered a, a punishment sure but it, it also left me feeling pretty vulnerable I, I can imagine yeah so were you given any any counseling or was it more just kind of an, an investigative talk the sheriff told me that they would officially interview me in a few days. Apparently it was standard practice to give people who were involved in critical incidents like that time to collect their thoughts and, and to calm down and, and get the facts together. But they want to interview you fairly quickly so that you don't get your story 
tainted by other people's perceptions and such. But the sheriff in, ended up invest, like uh, interviewing me a couple of days after the shooting. That night, um, I lived in a dormitory. I was a single airman, so we had rooms that were similar to college dormitories. But uh, my supervisor didn't want me to, to go home by myself that night. She claimed that it was because she didn't want people bugging me, wanting to hear the story, but it was probably because they just didn't want me to be alone. Yeah, well, that, she was but, very thoughtful, yeah. Yeah, that was good. It was that night at her house, we watched the probably the 11 o'clock news, and that's when I learned how many people had been wounded and killed. And that was the first time that I learned of the gunman's name. I, he had been stationed at Fairchild previously, but I had never met him. Um, that night... I remember lying in bed and every time I closed my eyes, I relived the, the incident. Sure. I could hear the radio call and I could see myself responding, pedaling and, and yelling at the gunman and, and firing. And I could hear the gunshots and I could see him jumping up in the air. That scene just replayed in my mind every time I closed my eyes. I think it was my brain trying to process, you know, what it had just gone through. Having experienced several life-threatening experiences of my own, including being in a movie theater in Vietnam at 12 years old, which was bombed by the Viet Cong, I know what Andy means when he talks about how time slowed down for him and he remained extremely calm and his focus narrowed. Neuroscientists now call this phenomena the matrix effect. Yeah, it's like your mind um, just takes over for you during the the incident and allows you to take the action, but then afterward it needs to uh, process it and, and all that adrenaline and emotion comes flooding in. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of it, overpowering. It's good to be able to talk about it afterward, but um, it turned out that I really wasn't able to, to talk. Initially, I didn't feel like I needed to or was ready to talk, and we were only required to, to have one session of mandatory counseling, and it turned out to be a group session with a bunch of other cops who had responded that day and it didn't seem like any of us were ready to, to talk about it or 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 wanted to talk about it in front of a room full of other cops there was one guy who was in touch with his emotions enough to to tell us the story about what he experienced he was um like the air force swat team he was est emergency services team he um helped search and clear the annex building. And when he saw one of the doctors that had been shot, saw his body, he uh, remembers vomiting. I wasn't ready to, to talk about it. I didn't, uh, wasn't having any feelings. I was kind of emotionally flatlined. Yeah, probably a group setting. And at that point is not really the right way to do it. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but uh, it's very personal, right? Yeah, I don't think it was probably the best way. It was probably more efficient for the Air Force, they had psychologists uh, fly in from other bases to, to talk to everybody on the base. So they probably needed uh, to get get through it pretty quickly. When did you decide to start investigating and write the book? I started doing some, some investigating almost immediately afterward because I was, I was so, um, I was beating myself up because of the way that time was distorted when I was responding to the hospital. 
time had slowed down so much that it felt like I had taken a long time to get there. So then when I learned that so many people have been wounded and killed at the hospital on what I considered to be my watch, I felt responsible for their deaths and injuries. So I really was trying to, to figure out how long it took me to get to the hospital because I kept second guessing myself, thinking I could have got there sooner. I could have saved more lives. I could have uh, stopped more killing. Because it turned out he had uh, 19 rounds left in his magazine when I shot him. So <clears throat> you could say I, I probably did save lives, but of course you did. I was, of course you did. I was, yeah. I just, I couldn't focus on that. I couldn't see that. I was more, all I could see is that uh, so many people were killed. So I was trying to get a copy of the, all of the reports and I received quite a few re reports, written documents, but I, one thing I wanted was the audio tape that would have shown what time I was dispatched and what time I radioed in that um, the gunman was down. But every time I requested that, I was told that it didn't exist or they didn't have the technology to, to make a, a cassette tape copy of it because it was recorded on big reel-to-reel um, dictaphone tape. I didn't believe that. I, I, I figured we had the technology. They just didn't have the desire yeah, to, yeah, to give on. it to me. Yeah, really. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, what, what, what irony. I mean, but this is the way that the mind works. Here you were the hero of the incident, right? Which you were. And you had saved all these people's lives. And yet, in your mind, you're questioning yourself. Like, I could have done a better yeah. job. It doesn't, everything doesn't make any sense. No, everything that we would think, like, as outside observers, we'd go, oh, my God, this guy's a hero. He should feel so good about himself, right? But yeah. your con your consciousness is going, well, no, no, wait a minute. Maybe I could have gotten there faster. Maybe I could have hit him with the first bullet. You know, to an outsider, it doesn't make any sense. So it's just sort of like you're in your own private anguish. Yep. I know it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I can see it now that it doesn't make sense and that I should focus on the good that I did and, and the out, the outcome. But um, at the time, and I think it is pretty common in incidents like this, that that's all you can see is your buddies who got killed or all of these other people who were killed or wounded. It's, it's a form of survivor's guilt, I think. And you were experiencing this in your normal life, the symptoms yeah. of this. Yes. It, and a, I was given um, awards like the life life saving award from the Red Cross and the Airman's Medal. Right, which is a heroism. big that's a big award in the Air Force, right? Yeah. 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 But I, I appreciated the the gestures and I I understood why they were honoring me and, and giving me the awards. But I it felt bittersweet getting praised and awarded for an incident that cost so many people their their lives or or caused them so much tragedy and trauma that's all i could see at the time and i think that's also common in the military when people get medals and awards i think they're reluctant to receive them also or to wear them because their buddies or or so many other people were hurt or killed or wounded and they probably second guessed themselves as well so yeah it was eating me up and it took like 14 years before i finally got a copy of that tape but in the meantime all i could think about was the incident initially i didn't feel like i needed to see counseling but so many people were asking me if i felt guilty for killing this dude 
that I thought maybe something was wrong with me. So I, uh, I went to see a counselor. She was the counselor for the Spokane Police Department. And it felt good to, to talk with somebody. And I think it was starting to be helpful. And then I realized that um, I'd been relieved of duty for seeking counseling. So I wow. pretty quickly stopped seeing a counselor and went back to work and, and stuffed any of the feelings that I was having and stopped trying to process the, the incident. Andy had taken down the shooter and saved numerous lives. Although hailed as a hero, as he replayed the incident over and over again in his head, he started to question himself. He started to wonder if he could have acted sooner and saved more lives. This turned out to be the first symptom of the psychological stress that would grow more acute over the years. When he sought psychological counseling from the Air Force, he was told that he could only do so after being relieved of duty. He could either continue to be a cop or receive mental health counseling, but not both. I'm hoping that lessons have learned, been learned that this, that this isn't happening again. Well, I, I, I think we have this sense of, uh, you know, soldiers and policemen as, you know, tough guys, which they are physically, but people don't appreciate how, how fragile a person's mind is, a person's psychology is. And, and that's, yeah. that's, the per, that's the part that gets wounded. I mean, your body can go on and you can go to the gym and get strong, but it's your psyche that, that's affected. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think uh, people who seek counseling should indiscriminately be relieved of duty or no. seen as a threat. <laughs> absolutely. Until, not. That's a pos- yeah. that's a good thing. That's a good sign. It's the person who walks away from it and doesn't feel anything that you've got to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about was you also did some research, some fantastic research into the background of the shooter. Can you talk about that a little bit? You bet. Yeah. Um, in addition to what happened at the hospital and, and researching that, it was very helpful writing the book and writing about the tragedy. Every time I wrote and rewrote a traumatic paragraph, it had less and less effect on me. But it was also helpful to to research the background of the gunman and, and figure out what, you know, what led to this, how did this happen? And, uh, it turn, turns out that he was picked on in high school and was teased quite a bit. And a lot of these people who become people who commit workplace violence have been teased. I don't know if it's the teasing that pushes them that way, or if their personality that would make them a violent person also is, a personality that people like to pick on because he was just quiet and um, odd and uh, didn't stand up for himself. He didn't have any coping skills. So um, when he was picked on, he just retreated, which allowed people to pick on him more, but not having any coping skills or resiliency. And a very overbearing mother too. Yeah. yeah he had an overbearing mother. These, the people who commit these things, they become like a, uh, transgression collectors or something where every time somebody does something wrong to them, they, they take that and, and it builds up inside them until they just break with reality. But he uh, had a habit of 
masturbating in public. He did that in his high school. And uh, when he finally graduated and joined the Air Force, he was identified at every step through basic training and his tech school and, and the bases that he was stationed at. People recognized that he was in need of mental health help and made recommendations. And he was seen by quite a few mental health facilities, but um, every time his discharge was recommended, somehow or some way, somebody uh, overruled it or it fell through the cracks and he, he just kept getting pushed on down the line. And um, like at his tech school, he had decent grades, so they didn't want to be the one to kick him out. They, they sent him on to his first base, which was Fairchild. His roommates complained that he masturbated in front of them and in front of their girlfriends. And uh, he had trouble at work and he just didn't fit in. And he was uh, antisocial and frankly, he scared a lot of people. His people that he worked with, um, they predicted that he would commit workplace violence at, at, at his workplace there. And he worked in a laboratory at um, Fairchild. So uh, eventually the psychologist and psychiatrist at Fairchild saw him and eventually realized that he was a threat and had him committed to a mental health psychiatric inpatient ward in Texas where he spent more than 90 days and had been diagnosed with multiple different uh, conditions, including uh, psychopathy and paranoid schizophrenia. And he was also chronically masturbating on the floor there in front of the patients and nurses. But his uh, overbearing mother may have had some influence in allowing him to stay into the military. She flew down there and, and caused such a commotion and harassed so many people that they may have just wanted to get rid of him. And he ended up being allowed to stay in the Air Force and went to a, another base in New Mexico where he also um, came to the attention of mental health people there and, and was eventually discharged. <clears throat> but... Um, by then, he had pretty much fixated on the doctors at Fairchild and blamed them for ruining his career. So he made his way back to Spokane. And they were the first two, his first two victims. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah. And they were just trying. They're really just trying to help him. Those doctors. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the people in his life were trying to help him, but he didn't see that. Sure, sure. I mean, one thing that really stood out about your book is that before the uh, shooter was even identified, people kind of knew who it was. Like, they were waiting for him to do something yeah. like this, right? Which is, when you think about it, like, you know, that's that's crazy. Like, if people know that somebody's dangerous and, you know, they've been identified by professionals to be, like, a, a potentially dangerous person who needs help, and they don't get the help. They're, they manage to slip through the cracks. I mean, that's on us, right? Right? Like, yeah. right? Like, when are we going to wake up and go, hey, we need to devote more attention to it and resources to, you know, identifying these people and helping them, right? Because yeah. potentially he could have been, maybe he wanted to be like a productive member of society, but he couldn't find anything to grab onto, you know? So it's just, you know, tragic in, in so many ways. And yet it, you know, it, it still continues. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, th- they were uh, lots of people who had, when they heard about this shooting, they were in bases throughout the Air Force, and they they knew who it was as soon as they they heard of it. But yeah, there were cops at his previous base who tried to get him into a some mental health facility after he had been kicked out, but there was no no services available. So th- there's a beautiful moment in your book. I, I found it quite touching. Um, and that's when you finally did get the tape. Can you talk about that? So that whole process of, of me um, seeking counseling and being relieved of duty eventually ended. I'd gone to two different bases since Fairchild trying to seek anonymity and uh, trying to put the, the incident behind me. Since I couldn't talk about it, I wanted to run from it. But I kept being introduced as the guy from Fairchild who course, shot that dude. Of so course. My, my reputation <laughs> preceded me. Right, the gunslinger. But, yeah. Yeah. Eventually, the anxiety and the irritability, and I drank a lot to calm the anxiety, not on duty, but um, it was it was affecting my, my life to where um, I f- started to think that getting out of the Air Force might be a, the best route for me to, to finding peace. And so I did get out and, and eventually made it back to Spokane and uh, continued investigating and researching the incident and appealing that decision to get the tape. And by then I was married and had uh, two kids. It was 14 years after the shooting. And when my wife was at work um, and my kids, I'd put them down to bed. I put the tape or the DVD into the player and was listening to... Uh, the incident and I could hear the radio calls that, that, that I had heard the disp- the initial dispatch. And I imagined myself responding and imagine myself encountering the gunman. And, and then I could hear my 24 year old self yelling that the gunman was down and I had been timing it and it was less than two minutes from yeah. uh, the time of the initial call to, to me shooting him. And that's a pretty remarkable uh, response time. I had Absolutely. no idea that it happened that quickly. <laughs> yeah. But um, it was a, a relief. So I began to forgive myself a little bit there. And, and uh, also, I had continued to seek counseling and was reading a lot of books on what I had self diagnosed as post traumatic stress disorder. Then that was confirmed finally at my previous, my last base. They said I had PTSD and and nothing they were doing was helping it. They gave me a lot of medications. It uh, didn't seem to help. And then after I got out of the Air Force and was seeing the VA, they continued to give me medicines and doing group counseling and occasional individual sessions. But putting meds, just just doing medication and not like getting to the root of the incident, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an unclean wound. It's not going to do any good. It just... <clears throat> but um, Treats the eventually, yeah, yeah. yeah, with the my wife was very encouraging and uh, stayed with me. My irritability was and drinking was starting to threaten my marriage, but um, she stayed with me and I kept looking for help and finally found it through the VA and some programs that they had for uh, cognitive processing therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, where it actually got to the root of the incident and allowed me to process the traumatic memories that I was having, which were causing my, um, my emotional state and my negative thinking and 
made a lot of other positive changes in my life, like avoiding the news media and their, the constant crime and, right. and divisiveness. That's that right. They, I think all of our mental health would benefit from turning off the TV and <laughs> going outside. Absolutely. Look at some birds. Look at the sky. You'd be better off. Yeah. yeah. You'd probably learn more too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually I did find peace and uh, I still am into firearms. I still like to shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's my only hobby. Yeah. But, um, but now instead of only seeing the evil out there and yeah, uh, yeah. stressing and, and being anxious about it. I, I can still be vigilant yeah. for the evil and uh, yeah. see the beauty in the world around me, which is a good thing. Not only did Andy put his life in danger to face a deranged active shooter, he also fired the decisive shot, stopping the gunman in his tracks from 70 yards. Sadly, the gunman had already claimed five victims and had seriously wounded 20 others. Four days after the shooting, as Andy was leaving Fairchild for a well-deserved rest, a B-52 bomber crashed during a practice run for an upcoming air show. The pilot made a dangerous unplanned maneuver, banking the plane 90 degrees while only 100 feet off the ground, losing control of the aircraft and killing himself and his crew. Like the shooter, the B-52 pilot had been the subject of numerous warnings about his aggressive, reckless behavior. As in the case of the shooter, they had gone unheeded. Warnings Unheeded is the title of Andy's book about these dual tragedies, the systematic failures that could have prevented them, and the psychological toll that they took on him and others. As Andy explains in his book, a big part of his healing took place 14 years after the shooting when he was finally given digital recordings of the law enforcement radio transmissions of that fateful day. Listening to them, he realized that he couldn't have gotten to the hospital any faster and thus had saved as many lives as possible. We're very grateful to Andy for his preparedness, bravery, and honesty. He's today's hero behind the headlines. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines.